Hello and welcome to episode 173 of the Tech Reformation, where the world of technology meets the worldview of Christianity. This week, it's Joe, Tank, and myself, David. Let's get started. Did you guys hear about uh, AMD this week? This is the show. No. This is okay. What what's what's up with AMD this week? I, like I did. Yeah. On Monday. There we go. You guys were too quiet. On Monday, they released. What was it? It was. They basically released a chip at every like pricing tier that Intel has. Yeah. Uh, for like ten percent less, that was like ten percent faster, and oh, wow. and use less power because it's seven Whoa. nanometers. I think they're all seven nanometers. And uh, I thought Intel's new big thing that they're coming out with is ten nanometer. Yeah, Intel has been stuck on 14 nanometer for like the last six years, even though they're on a TikTok cycle. They're supposed to shrink the die every two years. Right. And it's looking like they might not even hit 10 nanometers until 2021 across all their uh, across all their chips. Wow. So, yeah. That's not so Intel so bonkers. Nothing like this. I mean, at least that's the Intel we have so far. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Boom. Like this hasn't been a thing. (laughs) Intel hasn't had any competitors since like 2003 was the last time when like AMD was a viable competitor in pretty much any space to Intel. Mm -hmm. But it feels good to me because I used to build all my old computers on AMD. Yeah, Mm. I was a big AMD I always liked AMD better just because of the uh, price point, purely yeah. for the price point that they could they could beat Intel. Asus, Same performance. Is there any price. reason to buy Intel uh, at the moment? Um, right now, if you use a Mac, you probably want to buy <laughs> Intel. That's, that's kind of true. <laughs> if you're going Hackintosh, there's actually a way to do it uh, AMD now. Really? Yeah, there's actually two ways. Uh, one that you want. I is, mean, if it's Hackintosh, there's what are the chances of it not working? Right. Well, actually, so one of these actually <laughs> creates an Intel VM on your machine, but because of how native the VM is, it's actually like not any slower. Uh, really? Linus Tech Tips has a video. Interesting. Okay. It's very complicated, and you're like, you're doing deep dives into like learning how your motherboard works. Perfect. Yeah, it definitely will do that. So I don't recommend it, but you can. It is a thing that is doable. Anyway. Well, cool. Yeah, so if you're building a computer, look into AMD because there's really not a good reason not to. All right, we should get into our main topic. <laughs> okay, so yeah, what was the main topic there, Mr. David? Did you did you guys have a chance to skim this article? Read yes, this article? I did. I did. I read it. Sweet, sweet. So the article is called the the Tough Tomato Principle. Uh, that's the name of it, right? I, I never read the names of articles. Do you guys? I do. Uh, yes, I always do. No. <laughs> Why do you Where not you read them? I don't know. Like, if I clicked on it, I had the name in mind at some point. But, like, when the article comes up, I don't read the name. And this is one of those that, like, I opened because it was a long reads recommendation from the Tech Meme Ride Home, which is a great podcast. Um, and... I just had the tab open and I remembered what it was. And when I saw it, I just read it, but I didn't read the title because I knew that at some point. Where is Slack? Slack is here. Software, the tough tomato principle and the great weirdening of the world. Yeah, that's a, that is a title. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the uh, the basic concept here is that the the medium is the message, uh, but w- the the idea here is that technology shapes content. Technology shapes content. It shapes uh, us. It shapes tomatoes. Uh, and the example that the author uses is a machine used to process tomatoes uh, that essentially because of the way the the machine worked, it it worked out better to pick the tomatoes green in order to avoid them being bruised by the grasp of the machinery. And that kind of shaped the, the produce industry, at least around tomatoes, uh, so that like now here we are all these years later, like what we expect a tomato to be is kind of different from, from what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, Indeed. the principle that he's drawing here is that we create a technology to do the thing and the technology doesn't always fit the thing completely correctly. And so then the thing ends up changing slightly. Um, right. So like the, the technology changes the thing, but the thing also changes the technology. Yeah. And people don't, people don't really necessarily think about technology in that way. They think that the technologies right. are made to do the thing, but not the, not that the technology has an effect on, on the thing. And this, this affects the people who do the thing. This affects the, 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 the stuff to which the technology is applied. Uh, and I, I don't know. I really like this article because it was just this this other way of thinking about technology. We're always thinking about what do we do with it, uh, but the article was asking the question: What does it do to us? And it is reminiscent of a certain debate, uh, <laughs> which shall live infamously on this podcast: Is technology neutral? And uh, obviously, yes. Anyway, so what else? And uh, the author actually says <laughs> in the uh, in the article, no technology is neutral. That was yeah. ambiguous because the way the pause I put, but no technology <laughs> is neutral. No technology is neutral. Says they always no technology with, is neutral. <laughs> he says they always come with constraints influencing their message. Um. So I thought we could talk a little bit about... I, I don't know how much time you guys have had to put into thinking about this. We chose this topic kind of last minute. But yeah. uh, what are some ways... Maybe we can start with some obvious ways and then break into some less obvious ways that you feel like you've seen a technology either change a thing or change a person. Hmm. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because I spoke at uh, a Bible Tech conference uh, back in uh, April... Uh, which is a conference about uh, basically four people that uh, are working in technology uh, and Bible fields. Um, and my talk was uh, Bible software and the kinesthetic learner, which is just talking about how hands-on and tactile people and the hands-on tactile experience we have with the Bible and how we can translate into a Bible software. But uh, one of the other speakers at the conference had, uh, he talked very much about how the message of the Bible is uh, strongly contained in the medium of the Bible, and how there's this, been this more recent, um, more recent uh, uh, trend of trying to, yeah, close, nice try, 
um, the trend of trying to package the Bible in ways, and it's, it, this is a cyclical thing. This has happened many, many times over the years, but package the Bible in ways that are appealing to, you know, uh, here's a Bible that looks like a teenage magazine, and it's for teenage girls, or here's a Bible that looks like a, a comic book, and it's for kids, and, you know, it's different ways of packaging it, but how the way that you package it handles how you're going to interpret it and how you're going to use it. Um, and I thought that was actually a pretty interesting insight into this very similar sort of a niche that the, um, you know, if you, okay, well, how are you going to, like, I, I happen to have a Bible that my uh, father had when he passed away um, that I think he probably had put aside to give to me because he always knew that I liked Bibles and biblical things. Um, but it was the New Testament, but as a stack of individual books, it's all little books hmm. and designed to be they're in a box and they're designed to be taken out and you take the one that you're reading with you and you've got matthew with you or you've got uh uh your roman epistles exactly (laughs) and how so how do you you know do you think of the bible as this you know it's like uh what was it chuck missler used to say the bible 66 books written by 40 authors over a period of thousands of years you know and yet we have it in this one thing that we hold in our hand and we call it the Bible and um, how would your, the way that it is given to you, the way it's passed around, how would that affect your understanding and interpretation of it? So, and, and I think that that can happen at the level of like Bible software as well as how does our Bible software kind of color the way that the Bible is used Is the Bible, something that's given to us as a verse every day that shows up on our phone Hmm. and we tap on it, we need to read that verse, and that's, that's our experience and our interaction with the Bible. Bible as a or service. Or it's a study tool or study resource, and it's a library. You have to, anytime you open the Bible, you have to open a library of study resources alongside it so that you can really, really use the Bible. It's not really usable unless you have this library of study resources with it. Or how, do, you know, how does that, that packaging handle the way that we interpret it? So um, from a... Uh, steering the conversation strongly towards Bible software. Uh, I think that that's kind of an interesting, it's interesting how the medium can affect the message because I think the message is critically important. So it's interesting how the medium can color that. Yeah. I, I, um, I think that's really interesting. The, the idea of like verse of the day, it had never occurred to me to think about how, thinking of the Bible as this thing that you consume in the tiny little pieces day by day is just Mm -hmm. like, how does that affect like, like I've seen, um, I've seen arguments that going from, uh, from paragraphs for the Bible to, uh, like a paragraph per verse where each verse is a paragraph. Uh, like the KJV Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. translation tends to be, uh, each verse is its own paragraph. And the uh, ESV, for example, tends to have paragraphs with verses in line in them. Uh, and some people have argued mm. that the, the paragraph per verse method tends more toward people proof texting. Uh, mm. I also remember a time, and this is very common with old reformed books. Uh, I guess it's probably common with old books, period. But um, I was reading, I was trying to read Cornelius Van Til, uh, I think it was on Christian Education. Uh, mm-hmm. and Van Til is a hard author to read. Like he is, he's, 
either Dutch or German, and he his sentence structure is very, very complex. But on top of that, the book that I was reading, it was set in this... Um, it was either modernist or um, transitional typeface, but either way, it had very thin strokes. Uh, the font was designed to be used with like a letterpress machine, but because it wasn't used with a letterpress machine, you didn't get the indentation of the of the letter form affecting the paper. And so the thin strokes were even thinner than they were, were originally designed to be. Uh, and the, the text was set really wide. So when you got to the end of the line and you, then you, you, you put your back, your eye back at the beginning of the next one, it was hard to tell where, which line you had just been on because your eye traversed so much distance going back. It was just a hard book to read all around. And I wonder <laughs> what my impression of Van Til would be if, if the book had just been typeset better. Um, never right. mind the ugly cover. Obviously, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, but everyone does. Um, I wonder. I wonder if reformed books and and old books in general would get more traction if they were just easier to read, not in terms of the language, but in terms of the the typesetting. If there were more companies out there trying to make that easier. No, I think that's a really that's an interesting point. I think that's valid. I think there's a lot of books that get overlooked and a lot of uh, good teaching in history that gets ignored because it's just off putting. Hmm. You first look at it, it's off-putting tank you've been strangely silent strange. well not strangely i guess you tend to be quiet and then say something profound yeah. no you should definitely have a podcast that's just an assumption that's just an assumption that people make because i was silent for a long time it's like oh i guess if he talks then it must have been profound <laughs> exactly. i wouldn't have said it surely right <laughs> yeah people people don't make that assumption about me no. <laughs> anyway well at least not for very long <laughs> <laughs> oh he's gonna oh he did say something all right well <laughs> better luck next time <laughs> um the bible conversation makes me think of conversation that we've had in the past that you know, the medium manages the message or affects the message so we've talked about uh people reading uh, how we read articles online, uh, more a skimming feeling, reading quickly, just trying to get through it. And then if we read the Bible digitally, that can tend towards that habit of just we're on our phone, we're skimming through it, maybe a notification pulls us away. Um, and then we go back to it and keep skimming. And so uh, just that idea of maybe maybe if our if our desire is to get through the whole Bible, then maybe that's great. Maybe skimming through it like in, in that method will allow us to have part of our, our daily intake reading through the Bible quickly. Um, but if we want that time of deeper meditation, then it may be healthier to, you know, um, to be in more of a situation where we're, where it's easier to do more meditative things. Um, when are we, what are we doing when we're sitting and thinking on, uh, for longer term and maybe we could, should, um, read the Bible in that pattern. Um, but yeah, I also thought, uh, uh, in, in kind of the opposite lens of the article is also talking about how, um, when there's new technology, um, when there's new technology, but we don't, um, we say, Oh, everybody thinks this new technology is cool. So I'm going to use it. Um, but we don't really update ourselves to fit the technology. We mm -hmm. just start using that technology. And, uh, I couldn't think of a good example for your first question, but for this situation, um, at one of my previous jobs, uh, it was very clear that 
it had moved from um, just engineers had taken Excel files and how they were storing data. And someone had told them, hey, if you put this in a database, it'd be much better. So they just kind of like plopped it into access. And then, all right, now we're using databases. <laughs> and so this is supposed to be much better, right? And um, it wasn't. It wasn't much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a... Uh... I think that's a really common occurrence this idea of like we're going to we're going to adopt this new technology and and we're not going to go all in on it or we don't even know yet what going all in on it means. Mm-hmm. Uh and some of that is only figured out as you uh, as you start using it, you know, and maybe maybe you're you're using it for a while before you realize, "Oh, this would be so much better if we actually took advantage of all of the features." Yeah, I think that's how it can start to, as the article was talking about, start to mold uh, your process a little bit. So, say, like, I know um, as part of a company that switched to Office 365 and pretty much nobody knew what any of the apps were except for Word, PowerPoint, Excel, those things. Um, right. But then somebody was like, hey, this Microsoft Teams thing is pretty cool. And so it's like Microsoft Slack. Um, <laughs> and so... Everyone's like, yeah, let's start using that. And then it became a really big deal. And um, and just nobody had used forms except for like email, sending out an email, asking question and asking everybody for replies. And then somebody found Microsoft Forms and started trying that out. And then it just it kind of came the, the standard um, or at least maybe not the standard, but was moving towards people were like, yeah, this was this is a much better method. Um and then that can affect processes down the line. Yeah, and frequently when you do that, like when you when you adopt a new technology but you don't actually go all the way in, it ends up being worse than whatever you were using. And it be, if that goes badly, it becomes really hard to convince people that it's worthwhile when you are mm-hmm. using it fully. The example I think of that maybe a lot of listeners could relate to is churches and websites. Like I've built two or three church websites in my day and the pastors often want to have all these web-based things for members like online giving, maybe a message board for prayer requests. Like this was probably more the case like 15 years ago. I I think people, people are pretty okay with just having a website that says, here we are, listen to our sermons and come visit, uh, which is Mm -hmm. I think what a church website should do. Uh, but you know, you get these people in the church who are like, we've got all these new technologies. Wouldn't it be cool if like we could love one another through message boards and like always have that ability to communicate and share prayer requests and like request rides and meals. And like, wouldn't it be cool if, if we could get everybody using that? And the problem is that like, sure, it, it would be cool, but you have to, you have to move the humans. Like you have to get the humans to, you, you have to pick them when they're green and, and shove them into the website so that they don't get bruised. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, sometimes only the youth in the church use it or sometimes literally nobody but the pastor uses it. Um, mm. And then you end up spending more money on your, on your web hosting or on the web design. And, and ultimately, the website for visitors ends up being worse because they come to the site and it's not updated. And there's all this stuff that... that isn't information about where the church is located and how to listen to some sermons. And uh, they would have been better off if they had just said, okay, we're going to adopt like a minimum viable website with, with information about our church and sermons. 
Yeah, that's. Um, I was trying to. I was trying to. Sorry, a little distracted. I was trying to look into the read the article again because there there were some points in there that I thought were uh, pertinent. Um, but, but yeah, I think your point about the like the church websites and stuff like people kind of thinking they need to do um, seeing like seeing all this kind of multimedia uh, stuff going on for a website that's trying to sell a video game and saying, I want my church website to be like that. And it's like, well, that makes no sense. It's you're not, don't try to fit yourself into this thing. That's not at all what you're trying to achieve. Um, I I thought one of the things that they had in the article that was really interesting is they talked about the uh, cars uh, earliest cars being the horseless carriage. And I hadn't even really thought about it. They have a picture in there. We're going to obviously link to this article in the show notes, um, but they have a picture of the early horseless carriage. And I've seen those before where they kind of, they look like a carriage that's pulled behind horses and they sit really high up. They sit probably um, a good five feet off the ground, which is, you know, think about a modern car. You're probably two and a half feet off the ground or something like that. Um, and the reason for that was because in a regular carriage, you had horses pulling the carriage, so you had to be able to see over the horses to see where you were going. So you'd have to be taller than a horse sitting on the seat of the carriage. And so I never thought about that with the design of the horseless carriage. The first ones, they had the motor there. They didn't need to be that tall anymore because there were no <laughs> horses to see over. Um, but nonetheless, still, it was there because that's how they had done it. And uh, they were just kind of trying to, like, the... the that earlier technology was putting demands upon the modern thing that didn't make any sense, but they still were doing it. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's, that reminds me of two examples and both of them have to do with Tesla. Uh, one is yeah. if you've ever seen a Tesla and you look under the hood, there's nothing there. And if you look in the trunk, mm-hmm. there's nothing there either. The, the motor is small enough to just sit under the vehicle and there's really no reason for the vehicle to have a hood it's just storage like that's that's all that is in the Mm -hmm. front and you've got storage in the back and then you've got storage under the back like there's just there you could you could potentially like move an entire (laughs) house in a tesla even though it's just this tiny little thing i mean it's it's not tiny it's it's an average size sedan um but but it makes you wonder like what if tesla just made a vehicle that didn't have all the extra space that had like like, like, couldn't they make something that was a smart car type size, uh, but still just as powerful and just as fast? They probably could, maybe a little bit larger than a smart car. And wouldn't that be beneficial for parking? Wouldn't that be beneficial for, uh, like, number of cars on the road versus the amount of space that they're taking up? Like, like, like yeah. if cars moved toward that. Well, there was, I don't know if you ever saw it, there was a, there was a car, uh, electric car made in Spokane, mm-hmm. uh, Washington, where we live. Um, and I think it's gone away. They, they got uh, George Clooney bought one. Uh, so they started to get a little bit of national traction on it, but it was this car that was, um, the seating was more fighter pilot seating one, hmm. one in front of the other. And it was short enough and narrow enough that you could park it. Uh, like in a parallel parking spot, you could just nose in or back in straight into that spot. Hmm. And you could fit two or three of them in a single car spot. And that was kind of one of their premises. But the problem is, Everybody sees that and they go, well, that's not what a car's like. Right. Yeah. And even though it made a lot of sense, it was really fast. It was, um, had great technology for the era. 
uh, as, you know, as battery technology was like, like when Tesla stuff came out, I was like, oh, well, that's really neat. That's like what the smart car is doing. I mean, like what the commuter car is doing. And then, um, but Tesla got more traction. They have a, they have a, you know, they had more money behind them for and sure. And they also CEO. had some really good ideas and a crazy CEO and all sorts of stuff. But it was kind of funny because you'd see them once in a while around Spokane and everyone would just be like, that's such a weird thing. And they think it was not safe. They think it was going to tip over because it's this kind of tall, narrow thing. Um, but, you know, it had the weight of a full battery, the battery pack at the bottom of it. So it was no more likely to tip over than an F1 car, um, which tends to tip over sometimes anyway. <laughs> but but only when they're doing like 220. Um, so, but it was... Uh, it was just one of those things where, again, it this doesn't fit people's like paradigm of this is what a car looks like. I mean, you think about like the the driverless Tesla trucks; they do not need to look like semis, right? Mm-hmm. There's no need for them to look like a semi if they're a driverless truck. But it'd be really they weird if you they saw need to look like a semi. Yeah, a rectilinear solid flying down the highway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What? So there's a. Uh... There's one car called the uh, Elio or Elio. I don't know how to spell it or how to pronounce it. E L I O. Um, and it Elliot. was like Elliot. That. Elliot. Okay. Nice. The 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 T's invisible rather than silent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, it's loud and invisible. <laughs> I uh, it get. I was just looking at the website. It's seventy five hundred dollars new, eighty four miles per gallon. Um, for for mileage wow. i think mean, yeah um and i tried hard to convince it's not really out yet but i was like michelle if, if this came out like we should really get this like we could buy a much worse used car for that amount of money and get much worse mileage but her only comment on it is it's so ugly <laughs> it's like skinny and yeah and uh so sadly my dreams of it's, a, it's a more really than a nice, car though it's a mission <laughs> is that what it says? Yeah. Or, or am I saying that? <laughs> you could try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think of the future of cars. We could get rid of that wasted storage space yeah. on the uh, on the uh, Teslas. Dear listener, you may have noticed that it is LGBTQRSTUV Pride Month. People are wearing rainbows on their watch bands, on their watch faces, on their profile pictures, on their shirts, on their hats. It's starting to look like Genesis 6 through 9 could happen in reverse. Our sponsor this week has absolutely nothing to do with that, except the idea of wearing something to show your support for a cause you value. Instead of wearing rainbows to show your support for a reprobate mess of alphabet soup, you can say, you know what, Mr. Worldly McWorldly Pants? I refuse to support the celebration of sin, but I support the mortification of sin. So my shirt has a beautifully rendered image of John Owen, Jack. Put that in your e-cig and smoke it. To grab some reformed t-shirts, hoodies, posters, or even just to browse their great designs, check them out at missionalware.com to get your lifestyle on mission to the glory of God. Thanks to Missionalware for sponsoring the Tech Reformation. Yeah, that is interesting. To, it's hard to it's hard to really think about, you know, where the the article called it. What did it call it? Um, the you know, the valley, the valley of mismatch. The article called it the valley of mismatch, mm. where you have those those horseless carriages, um, where you're still in the old paradigm but doing the new paradigm. But it's really hard to recognize those. I imagine. I, w- I wonder how many more of those there are out there right now that we don't 
don't even see because we're just so used to the what we're used to. Yeah, the, the other one that's related to Tesla there is uh, Tesla. So Elon Musk recently came out and he was like, we've got this new chip thing. It's really, really good. It's going to make LiDAR look silly. And we're going to have fully autonomous, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it? AI driving. What is it? Uh, self-driving, fully autonomous, self-driving mm-hmm. vehicles. I think he was like by the end of 2020, I think he was saying, and they'll drive on any road in America with without a driver, no problem because of this chip that we have. And and LiDAR, everybody who's putting all this work into LiDAR, they're just silly. This chip is the future. Buying any car other than a Tesla at this point is like buying a horse and buggy, which is fine. If you want to buy a horse and buggy, you go ahead and do that. <laughs> But uh, just know you're buying a horse and buggy. Um, and I don't actually know if we're that close. Like I, Elon Musk tends to say crazy things that are not quite true, but are way closer to true than anyone expected. So I don't know if we'll be there, but I wouldn't right. be surprised if the fact that he made this announcement means that by the end of 2020, we'll be a lot closer than anyone thought. Um, but one of the biggest problems with, with AI cars is, is humans like, like self-driving cars having to interact with not self-driving cars on the road. And if we could all just push everything to self-driving cars, there's a good chance that by 2025, we could have this like, like if we made it illegal to drive your own vehicle, (laughs) like like if we just, bam. Well, yeah, I mean, here's the, the, the thing is it's like, those are those, those are these utopian things where it's like, and everybody plus everybody has $40,000 to buy one right, of these brand right. new cars. that's self-driving or more. Plus all these self-driving cars are going to be able to hold me, my wife and our seven kids, you know, like they all do right now. Right. They're all designed for that. You know, that sort of thing where it's like, Oh, and basically the government's response to that is we already have a self-driving car. It's called a city bus. <laughs> <laughs> Knock yourself out. But that's that. The, I mean, you're kind of illustrating it. Is is that like there's a lot that needs to happen for us to get there. And once we're there, there, mm-hmm. which may be may not be in in like my lifetime, but once we are there, it's going to be so much safer because the cars will all be talking to each other. If something goes wrong, every car will know about it before any human being sees anything. Um, the cars will be relying on on uh parts of vision that we can't see so driving in things like snow and fog is is even more feasible than when we stupidly blunder out and try to do it but but where we where we are now it's more dangerous because of the unpredictability of humans and and because of other right well yeah and that's also it's true for non-self-driving cars too the most dangerous thing about (laughs) non-self-driving cars is other people (laughs) but it's you know but it's true i mean that's a valid point is uh, the only way to make that really work and really safe is to have everyone go to it. And that's the problem is getting the whole thing to tip where everyone yep. can yep. do it. And it's like, you know, you can have my, you can have my Kia when you pry it out of my cold dead hands, <laughs> you know, sort of a thing. Um, so, so lastly here, uh, the article talks about how, uh, well, it, it brings up this concept that the, the, the factory line and a handful of other developments in, in history led to a lot of uniformity. Uh, it led to mass production uh, and it led to a lot of people having what is essentially the same job, wearing what is essentially the same clothes. 
Um, and the, the, the idea that like, oh, everybody just makes their own clothes or like they go to a tailor maybe, but like generally speaking, you either like, like you're not getting an article of clothing that somebody else has. Um, that idea is gone where we're now, you know, mindless office drones. Um, and the article is arguing that software is part of what is changing that. Uh, and and uh, a couple of the examples that they use are, uh, you know, it used to be everybody had the same, uh, the same food menu. Uh, but if you look at your Uber Eats and you look at somebody else's Uber Eats, it's a totally different experience. It used to be everybody walked down the same aisle at Walmart, but now we all see our own Amazon recommendations. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that we all had the same TV stations, but now we have YouTube, and that homepage is just geared towards showing you vid- no, like no no two people's YouTube homepage are the same thing. Um, so what do you guys think about that? Do you think that software is maybe encouraging individualism? Yeah. I mean, I think that can be, that's true. Um, that can be true even to a fault too. I mean, part of it is like, um, something that was brought up. I've been looking through some of, uh, some of the old Bible tech talks that uh, Stephen Smith from Bible Gateway gave. And one of the things that he talked about was uh, how he talked about different ways of doing Bible translation and how there, you know, we can take Bible translations and make them um, tailor them. You know, you can go through and actually uh, he, I think the way he refers to it as a Franken Bible where you're able to pick, you know, kind of a choose your own adventure Bible translation. Um, and we talked it I mean he and I have worked through the, talked to that some and and one of the things was like trying to do that through something that's been vetted by scholars so here are here are valid you know reasonable translations of this particular phrase and allowing you to kind of pick and choose through it but you know one of the things that he brought up is that with AI and with the limited um, with the limited uh, 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 range of words and range of concepts that you're going through in uh, Bible translation, he said, it's, he basically thinks it's only a matter of time before the, you know, you'll be able to kind of uh, request and have your own Bible translation printed. That's, uh, that's using, you know, the manuscripts there and, and AI to kind of drive that. Um, and in fact, he gave an example of one where it takes like the promises, the promises of God Bible for like David. And what it'll do is it'll take every promise that says, you know, God says to you, it'll say God says to David, and you can actually get that printed and sent to you. <laughs> so we can have that. <laughs> a little tough to hand that bad boy down, but uh, still. <laughs> so I, I, I think, yeah, I think <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> A little something for the reformers. Anyway, um, uh, Did the judgment promises getting applied to David too. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> like judging the nations. May, may David's teeth be broken off in his mouth. Wait a minute. They, they, hang on a second. <laughs> Fix this part. <laughs> Every time you is used, it's like, this is not so great. <laughs> There's some imprecatory psalms that are actually pretty terrible here. Uh, no, the uh, so so yeah, I think we're and and, and we've come to ex- expect uh, a personalized experience in every interaction. 
which can be very dangerous. They're going to lead to some of the some of the name it, claim it, seeker-sensitive seeker sort of sensitivities that we've had that have been, uh, you know, may have, some of them may have started with some very good intentions, but have obviously gotten to points of very much being abused. So uh, I think that can happen in the Christian realm, not just on Amazon. That was, um, <laughs> makes me think of uh, just recently reading something about and sharing the gospel. And it was talking about uh, this, the various tools um, that are out there, like the four spiritual laws and two ways to live, three circles and those. Um, and it was Chick by no means. Right. Trick tracks. Nice. <laughs> it's by no means uh, saying that anything was wrong with those. Like I was saying, by all means, use those. Uh, they're good for framing your thoughts and helping the other person have a framework in their brain. Especially trick um, tracks. <laughs> I have no idea what those are. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. I'm sorry. Do what? There'll be a link in the show notes. I'm sorry. Nice. <laughs> um, but his. Uh, the author's point was um, that we can, through conversation and through knowing people and knowing where we're at, if we're like doing public speaking, um, like if we know the people and what their desires are and just, just who they are and where they're at in life, then we can speak into their story better for them um, and and how the gospel is good news to that person. Um and he he made a he made a point that the more generalized a gospel presentation is, the more universal it is. Like that, you can use one of those stories with almost anybody, um, and they'll at least understand it and maybe relate a little bit to it. Uh, but the more contextualized it is, the more it applies to a specific person. Right. Um, and so you can't use this if you share the gospel with somebody who is you know in a very specific place in life and like just lost their job and is a health fanatic and is married and you have somehow a gospel presentation that works specifically for that is relates specifically to that person um that won't work with you can't just start sharing that with everybody you meet on the street um (laughs) and yeah i feel like uh maybe maybe that is a thing that will be more true with, with churches and discipleship and um, sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors that uh, we are, we could be starting to expect more personalization um, that if we just share, you know, this is, this is the gospel in a, in a more of a framework setting, then um, people may be like, well, that's just like a canned thing. Where's, where's the one for me? You know, like, where's, mm-hmm. You're you're not trying to relate directly to me, so you're just you're sharing a presentation. But learning to use those presentations and uh, and learn more about the person um, that we're speaking to um, would be would be of course beneficial, but may also relate better to this culture that has been influenced by software. Hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, it seems like the. Uh I, I think one one area that technology has really made a profound impact, and I say this as probably one of the most appreciative victims. Um, it seems like software has really made it so that nobody has to talk to anybody. Uh, you know, you you don't need to talk to the person at the store when you're getting recommendations for 
you know, what undershirts to buy or what socks to buy or, or, you know, what, what, what milk brand should you get or, or whatever, like you don't need to talk to your grocer. You don't need to talk to, uh, really anybody. You can, you can order a custom tailored suit without having to have a conversation with somebody who does, you know, who makes suits or tailors them for a living. You you can do all these things, um, without having to talk to people. And as an introvert, I deeply, deeply appreciate that. But I think there's there's a temptation maybe to uh, well so the reason the reason that's possible is because software software makes that possible in the sense that like I can Google I can go to Reddit and look for recommendations on a subreddit of people who are like wildly into the different milk brands and I can do all the research without having to actually post on the forum even um, and it seems like none of that really works for Christians doing Christian things. Like, like you are far better off talking to a pastor about what book you should read than you are about, than you are letting, uh, your, your friends, uh, anonymous or not anonymous, but untargeted Goodreads recommendations guide you, or then, then you are, uh, letting Amazon's what to read next guide you. Like there, there are things that, that God has designed the church specifically to do that we should not be trying to let uh, software take the role of. And I do wonder how that, how much that's going to be a temptation, you know, when, when, uh, Christian book distributors implements an AI to recommend your books, uh, based on past purchases. Um, is that, you know, cause they don't, they don't care about humans. Your pastor cares about you. (laughs) Uh, the, the CBD, I mean, hopefully they care about you, but, but ultimately their AI just cares about winning, make, you know, winning the sale. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, those, that's kind of the, the point of those things. And so, yeah, I, I totally understand. I think that there has to be, there has to be, it's important to us or important that we have some sort of connection to um, a real person who in a pastoral sense wants what's best for you, not just the best, you know, the most sales <laughs> and, and whatnot. Yeah. Or an AI sermon recommendation. <laughs> Don't have to go to church. Here's some of the best sermons this week. Oh my goodness. Based off of your listening yeah. preferences. Sermon audio could totally do that though. I'm sure if they're tracking their users, they have that data. Uh, they would never track their users. <laughs> In some cases, when you build a website, it's hard not to. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So uh, this has been a good discussion of maybe some of the implications of this article. But we would love to hear more of those implications, maybe things that you, the listener, have thought of or been thinking about lately uh, or were prompted to think about because of this discussion. Uh, If you would like to join in on the discussion, you can join us on Slack at slack.techreformation.com. You can also go to facebook.techreformation. No? (laughs) All right, never mind. We have an Uber Eats. Oh yeah, yeah. We do. We do deliver. It's just if you're near our house. And it's only chips. <laughs> yeah, it's just chips. 
<laughs> so, so techreformation.com, our website where we have all of our um, past episodes. So you can check us out there. This has yeah. been the Tech yeah. Reformation. Thank you for listening, <laughs> and we'll see you again next week. Now you're looking back.